from the Herb. Please support community radio and your local music scene. We can't hear you. We can't hear you. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everybody. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 7am. It's about 16 degrees outside. My name is Jackson. I'm in the studio with James. Good morning, James. Good morning, Jackson, and uh, good morning, everybody. And we have a special show today, and all of today is a special um, broadcasting of um, looking at the International Human Rights Day. And um, just before we go into that, just wanted to um, mention, um, shout out to, um, you know, the show last week. Obviously, we weren't here, but we had, a, the, again, another special day is International Day of People with Disability. And the broadcast all through from breakfast, um, you know, was great. And it was great um, for 3CR that acknowledges and, you know, fully participates in these kind of days as well. Yeah, yeah, thanks to everyone who uh, took part in that incredible day of broadcasting and yeah, it's good to have another themed day today. So, uh, what's coming up on the show today, James? Well, yeah, as I said, that it is International Human Rights Day and I, I guess unsurprisingly, perhaps, um, I think there's some issues with this day. Um, you know, it's a day, I guess it's kind of, it's a part of the, United Nations, which, um, you know, is quite problematic in itself in the sense of, um, you know, the role that it kind of plays in conflict and negotiation and things like that. And I guess also just the um, kind of lack of real substance that the organisation has to really govern over things and to play any kind of substantial role in the things like human rights. But... You know, it is what we have, I guess, and it it does play a role in, you know, being able to highlight, you know, the, the UN says that, you know, so-and-so is, a, is an issue and, you know, the UN has investigated this issue and, and that it contravenes the, you know, United Nations, um, you know, convention on whatever that issue is. And, I, I, you know, that does play a role in advocacy uh, for sure and... Um, so yeah, this, this day, you know, it really, it kind of acknowledges that, um, the start, I guess, of the, um, United Nations kind of General Assembly's, um, proclamation of, you know, what UN was about. Mm. Um, and, you know, I guess probably more significantly, I think, for, you know, activists and, and people on the left and 3CR listeners is that often, you know, Human Rights Day has been a day in which, we, you know, people have organised protests and, and things like that to say, well, we have this day and, you know, so therefore we are going to use that in order to kind of like highlight different issues and things like that. So, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of, that's what we're looking at doing. And it is a, 
it is a complicated topic though, isn't it? I mean, here in Australia, we don't have, um, you know, a national bill of rights or a federal bill of rights to back up our signatory on these various treaties. And there has been some foot dragging on certain issues related to human rights in Australia. I think we're one of the last countries to sign on to the declaration around indigenous uh, people's rights, uh, along with Canada. Um, for obvious reasons, you could argue, in Australia. And, you know, of the first thing that comes to mind as an Australian citizen, um, well, the first two things would be, uh, you know, health outcomes for Indigenous Australians and economic rights for Indigenous Australians and also uh, the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers uh, leave a lot to be desired. We also had a really interesting interview, and, you know, this is terrible, very community radio of me being unprepared, not remembering our guest's name, but he was, a, uh, I think, an advisor, a uh, strategic advisor um, around foreign policy, and he was talking about the way human rights uh, under the UN has become quite weaponized in the modern era, and, you know, we, we, we can highlight and point out the human rights abuses of our strategic opponents, but we're, uh, and by we, I suppose I mean the West or, or NATO or allies of the US are very quick to overlook uh, human rights abuses um, by our friends or our own uh, governments, uh, and that isn't held up to the same um, level of criticism uh, in the in the in the national discourse uh, as other countries' um, failure to meet certain standards would be. So it can be used as both a stick and then like yeah, just a, and it can be ignored as well. So it's important to it does give us a good baseline in which to measure, uh, particularly governments' actions, I suppose. I think was that Clinton Fernandez? Yeah, that was who it was. Um, Thank you. Yeah, for he your wrote memory, the James. book um, Island off the Coast of Asia, which. Mm is a really great book um, looking at Australian foreign policy, militarism, economic kind of impact uh, that has had on Australia and kind of its um, global responses to those things. I certainly recommend it. It's very easy to read as well. You know, it's not kind of a... It, I guess it is a heavy kind of topic, but it's not written in that kind of way. So mm. certainly, um, you know, people might want to get that as a Christmas present for someone or, um, yeah, it's a good book to read over summer. Mm. So... You know, one of the things that you mentioned there was about asylum seekers. Um, and, you know, at 7.30 this morning, we're going to be talking to Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective about, um, you know, what's happening with the refugee movement at the moment. We've seen some of the crossbenchers try to introduce um, legislation. Um, you know, we've seen, I guess, a bit of movement around mm. that from a, like, big political kind of point of view. Um, so we'll be talking to him about that. But, you know, I guess also... There's going to be an action um, today that's organised by Refugee Action Collective, um, you know, kind of demonstrating that there are people that kind of support action, that what's happening in Parliament. Um, but, yeah, and I think also kind of looking towards the federal election next year, ask him some questions, I guess, around that. Mm. Um, and th- there's another action. Um, well, it's an event later today as well. As I said, you know, the Human Rights Day is often a day where people um, sort of link that in with putting on some events and Hospo Voice is um, having an event that it's a meeting for Chinese workers about um, teaming up with a migrant workers centre and hosting an information session about kind of looking at your rights as a hospitality worker for Mandarin speakers. Mm. Um, So I think it's a really great initiative um, by Hospo Voice Union uh, you know, we've spoken to them before on the show and we're actually going to be talking to someone about some, you know, issues for, um, you know, that we kind of 
often hear about this, like the rise of China and um, Chinese influence and impact in Australia. We're going to be talking to someone later today about some yeah. of those issues. And yeah, I think I'll give the details of both these events um, later on this afternoon. But yeah, it's another good event that's happening today. Yeah, it is very timely that we are. The, we have Shan Winscript, who's a PhD candidate at Melbourne Uni in Chinese history, but she's coming in to talk about yeah this kind of rising and it's been going on for years now. This anti-Chinese sentiment in a lot of Western countries, as you know, we often hear about the economic rise, but there's also a lot of accusations of kind of strategic aims. You know, um, Clive Hamilton wrote a book uh, last year called Silent Invasion, and it's kind of kicked off kind of McCarthy-era um, paranoia about the aims and aspirations of the Chinese state in Western countries. So it's great that Hospo Voice are uh, reaching out to a community that are often, um, yeah, I guess, othered in, in, the, in the current discourse and uh, giving them, yeah, uh, an insight into workers' rights. You would think as a... <laughs> A country that uh, announces itself as communist, many Chinese workers would be ready to get uh, active and involved. So uh, maybe they'll find a very fertile bed of activists in this work. Um, and yeah, we also will have Over the Wall, um, which is looking at public housing. And we have Kelly, um, who's going to be on after that, from uh, talking about housing issues. So both, both actually, the those two segments will be talking about some of the housing issues that. Uh, around in in Victoria at the moment. Mm. So perhaps it's time to do a bit of alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn and shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Apologies for that a brief moment of delay in entering our alternative news segment. James, what's been catching your eye in the headlines recently? Well, one thing that I wanted to start by talking about was uh, an amazing film that I saw last week. Um, I don't often get the chance to go to the cinema Uh I do, you know, do partake in watching a lot of film and television, but usually from the comfort of my own home these days. But a film that I was very keen to see um, is Sorry to Bother You, which is showing at Nova Cinema. I've been a long-time fan of Boots Riley and his music with The Coup, uh, and, and, you know, following his political work as well during the Occupy... Um, during Occupy, we... Uh, you know, exchanged messages around. He was part of the um, Occupy Oakland. Um, and he sent messages that we read out at, um, at Occupy in Melbourne and vice versa um, to to Oakland. And yeah, so he, you know, he's a very um, he's an engaged activist as well as a you know brilliant musician. And he he's written and put together this this film, and it's one of the best films I've seen in a really really long time. And I, I'm not sure it was. It almost didn't get distribution in Australia. 
and it isn't Nova at the moment. I'm not sure if it's going to be shown or if it is shown anywhere else. But and it's not on for very long. Yeah, I don't... As well. It actually finishes on Wednesday, it looks like, so I've only got a couple of nights left to see it. Yeah, well, I, uh, it will eventually... I think it has some streaming rights. I'm not sure if it'll be streamed in Australia, but uh, people should definitely go out and, and check it out if they can. I guess, you know, we've only got a few days, so I'll, I'll try not to be, spoil the whole film, but I guess to kind of sum up what it is, and I think one of the things that is so beautiful about the coup and um, his music and the way that Boots talks about anti-capitalist politics is that it, it's in a way that, you know, it's fun and, it you know, the music makes you want to dance and engage in things, and the film, it it has this really anti-capitalist message, but it's also fun and it's funny and it's... You know, it's engaging on a lot of levels, and I think it's that makes it a lot more palatable for people to engage in these really kind of big political issues. The film is uh, the main character is a telemarketer, and he's kind of sold these constant ideas about climbing the chain, and you know, if you do this, you work hard, you'll get to you know these different points of um, telemarketing kind of gold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it kind of, you know, there's a political, like a union is tried to form through there and the, yeah, it is, it, it kind of is a bit of a like dystopian reality as well. Um, so there's a, a bit of other stuff that comes from that, which, you know, I, I won't spoil, but that, yeah, I just would suggest to anyone, um, you know, while it's on at the cinema and then when you can to check it out. We can probably play a track from the film as well, actually, yep. um, at the end of this session. So just, I'm interested in because it's been a, a a smash hit this film unexpectedly it was a low budget film you know made by a fairly alternative artist um, that probably not a lot of people expected to get uh, the kind of reception it's got in the states but it's been you know widely viewed it's made a lot of money at the box office what do you think it is about the way they're telling this story or the messages do you think it's a timing thing that these messages uh, are really resonating with American audiences for example or here in Australia? Well, I think it's a message that people engage with, though, and, you know, we only have to look at, like, look at the state election here in Victoria, that the Labour Party, for the first time in a long time, ran with some kind of left-wing basis. I mean, it's certainly not in any way close to the kind of idea that Boots Riley's putting forward in his film or you know, as left-wing as a lot of people would like the party to be. And, you know, we see with Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders and things like that, people want to engage with these ideas, but it's the lie that we've been told since um, neoliberalism that people are individuals and they don't care about other people and you should just accept that capitalism is going to give you a trickle-down... There is no alternative. Exactly, yeah, and I think that... When people are presented with this in a way, like I said, it's a really good film. And I think, you know, like any art, you can't just say, you can't just deliver a political message without actually being good art, you know, because people are are going there to see the art. Mm. So you have to do both things. And it's just a really well-made film. And, yeah, I mean, I didn't find it, it's not surprising, I guess, that it was going to be good because I think, you know, Boots Riley is an amazing artist, but it... It was better than I imagined, you know, and I think that it, yeah, Boots really struggled to be able to get the film out. He ended up, you know, no one would take on the, you know, he'd written the script and everything. No one would take it on. He ended up just publishing the script so that and people could just like read it and 
um, you know, eventually he, he was able to, to get the film made. Uh, you know, it was made for a relatively small budget, like 3.2 or 3.5 million, which obviously is a lot of money, but it's not to, in order to make a, um, a film like Hundreds this. of people are involved in creating a feature film as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, it can seem like a lot, but it, it really isn't. And it has a lot of, like, CGI and things like that, which is expensive to make. And it, it looks, you know, like a brilliant film as well. And I think that people just want to, people want ideas of, to engage in these things, you know. People want to be able to find a way to, I think the stark reality of, you know, the capitalism is not providing for people is really, you know, it's laid bare, and mm. I think that people want to engage in ideas that are showing, highlighting this, mm. and, you know, perhaps looking at alternatives. Yeah, people are ready for change. I mean, I've been uh, I've been moving house, which has been taking up a lot of my attention, I'm going to be honest, but I have been keeping somewhat of an eye, particularly on the protests in France, which people may have been following. There's 1,200 people arrested this weekend. There were 120,000 uh Yellow shirts, as they're being loosely termed, but I think it's a it's like a loose coalition of a number of different groups dissatisfied, as you're saying, with the status quo, dissatisfied with the political decisions of the Macron government, who uh, have been increasing people's costs of living through slashing welfare and raising uh, petrol prices. At the same time, they've been cutting the wealth tax in France, so delivering uh, more money to the to the very very rich. Uh, and, and, and essentially taxing the poor and particularly people from regional areas have been coming into town. But over the weekend, this one just gone, 120,000 people, uh, were estimated to be violently, uh, rioting in Paris and targeting, uh, symbols of wealth and prestige, you know, targeting mm. fancy hotels and businesses, targeting symbols of the French Republic, like the, uh, Arc de Triomphe and other national monuments to say that at the moment the state is not delivering on its um its end of the bargain you know in terms of but you know to greet these 120,000 protesters were an estimated 89,000 police so you know the the level of confrontation and the distance between the government and the people that are being governed is really stark and and when you listen to uh commentary on on the mainstream news they're often presenting the destruction the anger of the of the of the masses of people, this mass mobilisation, who do have, you know, they often say they they have really you know confused aims, but their aims are just about getting a better deal out of uh, the government that's 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 ruling them. And you know, the language that's used is things like you know it's, it's incredibly disturbing and destructive, and you know, but it seems few uh, commentators in the mainstream media are really engaging with the the causes that are that are getting people out on the streets to commit. These are acts of violence. You know that as soon as there's any violence, apart from the violence of the state, it is just uh, deplorable. To borrow a word from Hillary Clinton, but I think you're right that we, you know, we're seeing. You know, there's 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 a lot of marches going on in England at the moment about Brexit as well. We saw about ten days ago, all across Australia, students walking out of school uh, about the complete inaction by our government on climate change, uh, you know, a, a key issue for young people, young people that will vote, uh, possibly in the next election, some of them, you know, those that are in year 12. And we um, had the big uh, protest on Saturday as well to stop Adani, and a lot of the same students were involved in, in that as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's incredible that, that the uh, the political leaders of the country want to shame 
these young people, want to say that these young people are somehow doing a disservice to their democracy. Matt Canavan said they should be learning how to become miners, you know, mm. and uh, it's... Um, and Scott Morrison said, was it that, um, you know, these people can look forward to unemployment? I, yeah, I think that was Canavan as well. He said all they're going to learn is how to line up for the dole queue. Um, and they should, yeah, they should be learning how to mine and... Shows how little that they know anyway, because clearly if you go into a Centrelink office, there is no queue because there's nobody that works there anymore and everybody has to do it online or via a phone, which you can stay on for the rest of your day because you have nothing else to do, clearly. And soon enough they'll be talking to a Serco guard, you know, who's going to roll out this quasi-security forces to all vulnerable people. But, um, yeah, I just... It's just incredible, the distance, I think, between the ruling elites and people who are are trying to make a difference and the kind of, um, you know, the casting of of masses of people as somehow not wise enough or not engaged enough to make informed decisions when really they're out on the street doing exactly that. That's, That's what's brought them to the street, you know, a political engagement with these issues and the idea that being politically engaged somehow harms our democracy and we need just this technocratic elite making all these decisions for us. And, you know, the the environmental stuff is, you know, we've got Queensland on fire. You know, I, on the way home, you know, in, a, in the extreme heat last week, you know, the ABC is telling people in Bananyong not to leave their homes because if they leave their homes, that will mean death. It's too late to me- leave your home now. You know, these are fright... We've seen California from a distance on fire. It's... It's leading up to winter in California, you know, and there's thousands of homes being burnt, burnt down. I was talking to an Irish guy I lived next to the other day who was saying that Ireland has just endured its probably its first ever drought. I don't know if you've ever been to Ireland, but it rains almost constantly. And they had, I think, four months uh, across spring. They just went from winter to summer without going through uh, autumn, you know, and having all those heavy rains. You know, the farmers are really struggling this is, you know, you just hear these stories repeated over and over again. You know, the the the, the protests that are occurring in France have spread to uh, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. You know, two countries that probably haven't had popular unrest at that scale in some time. It's um, yeah, there's kind of the change um, is strong. Uh, people kind of assume an inevitability about kind of protest in France, and I think that yes, it's it's an interesting in. You know, obviously, the, we talk about the French Revolution, you know, which were essentially a bourgeois kind of revolution itself anyway. But it's a really, it's a weird kind of thing to fascinate over and that it's, it feels an inevitability. And, but, you know, these, it's, well, you know, what a great culture to have anyway, if people just assume you'll protest to keep democracy in check. Mm. But, people you know, are, I think yeah. there was, um, 1200, over 1200 people were arrested at those protests, um, over the weekend and I think you know I think that's quite interesting in itself in um, you know the kind of strain that that's going to put on to the prison system to have so many people uh, part that are being arrested and you know the protests look like they're going to continue so you know more and more people will be arrested and you know Macron has just spoke overnight praising the police Mm. you know there's no kind of uh, idea of like talking about, you know, because clearly, and you know, same as the the protests that the riots that happened um, in Paris a, a few years ago. I think what was that like, maybe ten years ago. Mm, they they you know they were targeting the uh, wealthy areas of of Paris then as well, and it's a real class 
mm. um, distinction that's being made. And there's no kind of acknowledgement of that yeah. from the French government or the kind of French it's elite. And it does kind of remind you again of that, um, you know, of the French Revolution type things where they're sitting in their beautiful mansions and just, let them eat cake. you know, yeah, let them eat cake. Mm. Um, it's um that they do use the same language here in Australia when we've seen particularly around issues of racism and fascism on the rise when people go out to confront these ideas and they have a very political consciousness while they do it and the media just says there were far left and far right protesters and they cause a disruption. There's been a lot of that commentary about France mm. as well. There's this this blend of hard right and hard left and they're just causing a ruckus as if they just want to rather than protesting against them. I mean, they're asking for the French government to withdraw from NATO, to repudiate its debts to the EU. You know, these are definitive political aims, you know, that they would like to see their country represent their own interests instead of the interests of this... Uh, economic elite, which appears to be all anyone's in the, in the ruling class is doing at the moment. We should uh, wind it up. I might play a song uh, from this film, Sorry to Bother You. Uh, this is the opening track from the soundtrack of the film. Uh, a bit of a language warning on this one as well. Um, I think this is called Oh Ya Hit, featuring Lakeith Stanfield from the film Sorry to Bother You. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 7.31 a.m. You might be listening on 8.55 a.m. on your analogue radio, or perhaps you're listening online at 3cr.org.au, or in the future on a podcast. And we are speaking now, we're going to be speaking to Chris Breen, and Chris Breen is from the Refugee Action Collective. And as we mentioned earlier, there's going to be a Human Rights Day refugee rally it's calling for an end to the offshore crisis. Uh, refugee supporters um, should meet at 6.30pm um, today in the Burke Street Mall. And, um, yeah, the, the action's calling for an end to offshore processing and to bring the refugees onto Australian soil. So, Chris, thanks a lot for joining us this morning. Hello, Chris? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I guess one of the things that, um, you know, we start by, because, you know, I guess the, um, you know, not just Human Rights Day, but one of the things that the um, RAC has kind of put forward this action is is about the kind of crossbench um, uh, bill that's been put forward by, you know, Karen Phelps and, and others, um you know, and I guess yeah, to maybe just explain to people a little bit about what that what that bill is and what that would mean for asylum seekers. Uh, yes, RAC is supporting the the bill put forward by Karen Phelps. Essentially, it would allow for the transfer of all uh, remaining children and their families um, from Nauru to Australia. There's currently ten children left on Nauru, uh, plus there are also separated fathers from children who've been sent here. Um, and the bill, importantly, would also allow for the medical transfer of adults um, from uh, Manus and Nauru. And there is just a, a crisis on um, uh, Manus and Nauru. You know, people have been there for six years now, um, and it's hard to find people who don't have mental health problems. There were 27 suicide attempts um, in the last two weeks. It's incredible sort of statistics. Um and so the, the bill would allow that to happen. And um, to avoid that, to avoid losing a vote in Parliament, uh, the coalition government 
delayed in the Senate for hours so the bill didn't get to the House of Reps and then shut down uh, Parliament early to avoid, you know, bringing people uh, here for, you know, desperately ill um, people on Manus and Nauru. Um, the bill is going to go back to uh, Parliament in February. So, you know... Uh, Morrison is going to have to face that vote. And, you know, it looks like he will lose a vote on refugees, which he's staked his whole political career on. Mm. I mean, harm will be done to refugees in the intervening period. I mean, Madison Sun Frontiers put out a report recently called Indefinite Despair that um, detailed 60% of the people they'd looked at had mental health issues, um, uh, 30% had uh, attempted suicide. Um, so we're calling on all MPs to, to back the Phelps bill. Um, importantly, uh, Labor uh, voted for it in the Senate, which is a, a small but not insubstantial shift away from, um, you know, a long, long bipartisan support mm. over refugees. Um, it will need one of the dissenting coalition MPs uh, to vote for it. And I guess perhaps even more importantly, regardless of what happens to the bill, the, I think the refugee movement has made some important strides in the last, you know, couple of months. Uh, Morrison has been forced to bring the children off Nauru, uh, almost all of them. And the conversation has now turned to getting everybody off. You know, the cracks in offshore processing are growing wider and wider. Yeah, it is uh, slow but certain progress, isn't it? Um, it's really a microcosm of you know what has been years-long uh, uh, torment and turmoil for these people because the kind of foot dragging based on political optics by the government, you know, is just yeah, going to mean more pain for these innocent people. Just to confirm, the the current bill as it stands would allow uh, people suffering mental health conditions to be immediately moved off these offshore detention centres. It's not just for uh, medical emergencies, not including mental health. The, the bill allows for medical transfer if two doctors sign something saying that this is where refugees will be best treated. So it doesn't automatically allow for people with mental health issues mm -hmm. to come off. Um, it is if the doctors believe that those people cannot be treated where they are. And I think there's, there's certainly a good case. Um, I mean, in the, the report that um, Medicine Sans Frontiers put out, um, Indefinite Despair, uh, they make the point that asylum seekers can't recover um, when they're living under a policy of indefinite processing, which creates that permanent sense of d despair. So there, there would be a good medical case um, to bring people here, but it will rely on uh, two doctors. Um, the minister is, under the bill is still able to refuse uh, transfers, but if he does so, he has to give do it within 24 hours' notice and write to Parliament, and then it then gets assessed by an independent health um, committee within 24 hours that has the final say. So it, there are so many seriously ill people on Manus and Nauru, it would start to you know unravel uh, slowly, but it would start to unravel offshore processing. I guess one of the things, um, you know, obviously it hopefully leads to, but one of the things that kind of, um, you know, I, I, when I hear about, you know, getting children off um, Nauru and, you know, Manus Island and stuff, I, I think 
I mean, obviously we, you know, the children are the most vulnerable, but you know, we want everybody off there as well. And you know, how uh, is this going to be a stepping stone to being able to get everybody off there as well, off, um, you know, out back onto Australian soil? Do you think? Um, that, yes, I mean that's <laughs> that's what we've been campaigning campaigning for in the Refugee Action Collective for kids off all off. That mm. what harms children harms adults. Um, you know, lots of the, the adults on Manus and Nauru have their own children they've been separated from for, for six years. Mm. And that has just, has generally been the, the flavour in the movement. Nobody has stopped and said, right, the kids are off, everything is sorted. Which actually, which did happen when Howard got people off in 2007. There mm. were, there were uh, people who stopped campaigning. Yeah. But this time that hasn't happened. I mean, it was actually, I was involved in organising the teachers walk off because I'm a, a teacher. And the, the, a lot of the kids had come off, but it was very clear that when we went to teachers and said, no, we have to get everybody off, that's what people wanted. And we got hundreds of teachers out on that basis. And I think that sentiment is, you know, spread widely through the movement that it, that it had, has to end, that the cruelty's gone on for six years. It's abhorrent. Um, it, it needs to stop. One of the other things you mentioned before, Chris, is about Labor's kind of response and, you know, that they're supporting this bill. And I guess, you know, next year, you know, I mean, obviously, disappointingly, it looks like there, you know, it's going to be no action at least until February next year when Parliament resumes. But looking further into next year, you know, we're probably going to have a federal election in, you know, around May. But I think the Labor Party, you know, already came out this week saying that there won't be kind of major changes to their refugee policies. What kind of things do you think, like as refugee advocates and supporters, we can be like expecting from the federal election or, you know, that we should be kind of campaigning around? Um, I I think what we expect from the federal election depends on us a little bit. We do have Labor uh, National Conference um, in December. Um, so after our rally, it's on the 16th. So we, we are calling for Labor to shift its policy. Uh, you're right, it seems unlikely that things are going to shift, although the votes will be close um, at conference. Labor for Refugees will put up some versions of their motions. Again, the ones they tried to put at Victoria were, you know, to close Manus and Nauru, to bring the refugees here, opposing both turnbacks. Um, but at, at the moment, uh, Labor looks likely to go to the election with support for offshore processing in place. I mean, there's, there's a contradiction at the heart of their policy where they say that they intend to clear Manus and Nauru, but they don't have any third countries any more than the coalition does. So other than the 150 places, and there's still, you know, well over a thousand people on Manus and Nauru, they've got nowhere to send People. So I think our job in the refugee movement is to create a crisis for Labor, that they have to resolve that contradiction, that they have to bring refugees here. And I guess very importantly, this year, Palm Sunday Refugee Rally, which we'll be calling to bring the refugees here, takes place on April 14th uh, in the run-up to what looks likely to be a federal election in May. And, you know, that's one more way that we can put uh, pressure on an incoming Labor government. Um, certainly if Labor hasn't shifted, we will be fighting Labor after the election. It will be an issue from day one. Yeah, because I guess, you know, you mentioned the Labor Party conference in the lead up to the last federal election. It was quite, I guess, a significant part of that was, uh, you know, the push from some, you know, members and, you know, significant um, people that 
Bill Shorten included to support a turnbacks um, policy. Um, you know, and there was a lot of movement from, you know, even unfortunately the, some of the unions as well to kind of support that. And yeah, in the end, you know, it seemed like I guess you know they made the choice to continue that kind of policy. Um, but you know, there are I guess there are you know the Greens and, and other um, independents and things as well that can hopefully be kind of pushing forward a more positive outcome for refugees. Um, that, that's true. There were, I mean, last time around it was, there were two unions, the um, CFMEU and the MUA. They dispute versions of that who voted for the um, the policy and the it will only, Labor's rotten policy only get up this time if unions vote for it again. But there is growing movement in the unions. Um, you know, when the teachers had their action, there were serious contingents from eight other unions, including the CFMEU, which had a big contingent. Um, it, be, it becomes more difficult for those unions to do the same thing. Now, whether it's enough this time around, that, that's not clear, but we're, you know, we're going to continue to campaign within unions. I mean, ACTU has very good refugee policy and we're urging all unions to vote in line with ACTU policy which is to bring the refugees here and close the offshore hellholes. Um, and, yeah, I guess we just want to talk, I guess, a little bit about the um, action today. And if people yep. want to find out the information, um, you know, if they've perhaps missed as we talk about it, um, please check out the Refugee Action Collective Facebook page or the website, and you'll be able to find the information there. But, Chris, if you wanted to, um, you know, just give us a little bit. You've got um, quite a big lineup of, of speakers that are going to be speaking and just let people know, like, what, what they can expect heading down this afternoon. Yep. Um, so we're having a range of speakers at the Burke Street Mall and then a short march around the block. We've got... Um, so we'll be calling for the offshore camps to close and in the short term for uh, the MPs to back the Phelps bill. So we've got David Mann um, from uh, Refugee Legal. Uh, we've got uh, Tris um, from the um, Islamic Council of Victoria. We've got Shofikul, Rohingya Refugee. We've got Pauline Brown from Labor for Refugees and a, a live cross to Aziz on Manus and Mehdi on Nauru. So if you can make it down tonight... Um, 6.30 Burke Street Mall, uh, the attendance and rallies does make a difference. The, all of these things are coming together, the advocacy, the legal action, the protest, the, the union response, and it's that sort of pressure which has you know, forced Scott Morrison, who's the architect of the cruelty, to, to bring kids off Nauru. We, we are making a difference, not as, as quickly as we would have liked, but we are making a difference. Please come along if you can. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things both, you know, when we've had offshore and um, onshore detention is that these kind of actions really do mean something to the people that are feeling the brunt of this the most, and that's the refugees that are being locked up as well. And I know that, you know, the messages that we hear of the years from those people, that these things do mean a lot to them as well. No, that's true. I mean, I was reading something by Aziz uh, recently, and he was writing about the mental health crisis on uh, Manus. And he's been one of the strongest leaders there for a long time. And he spoke about his fears that what was happening to other people, he would be in their shoes at some point. And that that just struck me that as strong as he is, the, the circumstances are, are devastating. Um, and to have that fear and, you know, he's been there six years. Uh, so, yeah, please come along. 
Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Chris. And um, you know, we've just sent out the the details as well um, through our social media pages. Um, and you know, hopefully um, we'll have a chat next year, um, leading into the election, and looking forward to other kind of events and actions that RAC is going to be part of. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, listening to 3CR. Uh, the time is 7.45. Just going to play a track I've been enjoying recently. It's by a Melbourne band called Number One Dads, a bit of a side project for the guy from Big Scary. Um, uh, this has got a guest um, guest singer on it, uh, Ainsley Willis, and the song is called So Soldier. You tuned in to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's just coming up to 10 to 8. It's uh, 17 degrees outside. It's going to get up to around 21 uh, late this afternoon. Uh, might be a few showers mid-afternoon today. Um, and it's going to be a pretty warm week, 24 tomorrow and 32 on Wednesday. Uh, and up next we have our regular segment, Over the Wall. Uh, this week, I believe... Uh, Duncan and Peter are focusing on housing here in Melbourne. Uh, yeah, so stay tuned. The Andrews government recently had a landslide win, but let's not forget the issue of public housing that the government ignored coming into the election. One minister, when asked at a rally what was the Andrews government policy on public housing, the answer was, we've got a great policy on social housing. Our government is committed to social housing. And the questioner from the Defence of Public Housing Network repeated their question, we're not asking you about social housing, minister, we're asking you about public housing. At that point, the minister looked perplexed and didn't answer the question. Public housing continues to be sold off in the state of Victoria at alarming rates. It was not an issue for the Andrews government during the election campaign. It was wiped to the side and full steam ahead with the sell-off of public housing and the full steam ahead of processing people into the pathway of social housing, which is owned by private corporations who put people onto 12 months leases without the security of public housing. Basically, I've been tenants in both social housing and public housing. In Housing Commission, Government Public Housing, you have to do something really bad to get kicked out of there. Social housing, people get kicked out all of the time for many reasons and definitely not the extent of reasons and security that people get offered in public housing. It's been very admirable to have the big camp out on the steps of State Library recently and thank you for all the dedicated people who participated in that rally. Today on Over the Wall we speak to Yasmin from the Defence of Public Housing Network. Yeah, so my name's Yasmin. I'm a part of the Public Housing Defence Network. So we're an organisation, uh, we're a network of different individuals and tenants and organisations that want to first and foremost oppose the Daniel Andrews Victorian Labor government's plans to, um, to sell off more than nine public housing estates to private developers under the title of the Public Housing Renewal Program. So we're a campaign group that organises against privatisation and to defend public housing and to extend it. 
And to give listeners a, an idea, how is the group meeting and, and forming and, and getting around presenting issues on the campaign so far? Uh, so we do a number of things. We we meet up regularly to discuss the issue, but more than that, we want to launch a political campaign to spread awareness about what exactly is happening because what we've found is that not many people know about the Labor government's plans to privatise the housing estate. So we do everything from hold public forums to have protests, whether that's in the city or on various um, public housing estates. We go around and door knock and talk to tenants to let them know about what's happening and um, try to rebut some of the, the government's um, arguments in favour of the privatisations and the, the sell-offs. Um, and we are trying to um, grow our campaign to involve as many people as possible to join us in trying to do that. And what are some of the stories that you're hearing when you do door knocking with tenants and other local residents? There are a number of things. Firstly, there's just the general condition of public housing that I think a lot of people don't get a sense of until um, you go onto the estates and talk to people. So whether it's um, people talking about how it takes um, weeks and weeks to get basic repairs done um, to talking about um, how I think a lot of families especially who have moved into public housing who have um, who have had multiple children can't um, can't really fit into the houses they have. So the conditions of the estates, the conditions that people live in, things like that, um, as well as just generally the um, frustrations that people are having with the renewal program. We hear a lot about how um, people from the Department of Health and Human Services are going specifically to the estates that are being targeted um, and trying to convince people to move out, um, kind of either covertly or overtly. So trying to convince tenants that um, the, of the public housing renewal program, convincing them to sign tenancy agreements so they can move out to what are probably going to be far-flung regions of, uh, of Melbourne, promising them that they can return with very little likelihood or kind of promising or kind of sugarcoating the issue and making it seem as if um, tenants just have to sign these relocation agreements and leave, that the tenants are getting um, a lot of, uh, they're being put under a lot of pressure and they're facing a lot of trickery, I think, on the part of the department, um, trying to get people to move out of the estates. And um, the the link between those two things that I've said is that the, um, the state of public housing is woeful. There needs to be a more serious investment in public housing and there needs to be more serious repairs done and a whole bunch of things to improve people's lives. Um, but the Department of Health and Human Services and the Victorian Labor Government is presenting it as if um, this renewal program that privatisation that's going to be selling off more than half of the estate to public housing, um, half of the land to, sorry, half of the land to private developers, that the department is saying that this is going to be the solution to these problems. So it's, it's very, very tricky in that sense. Do you think the tenants feel caught in a situation where, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, a lot of renovations and repairs aren't, aren't being done, that properties are uh, allowed to sort of downgrade and, mm. and sort of to force a position where that the government can try and push with more justification for a sell-off and so they're caught in that sort of position of actually living in the premises yeah. with that going on and then facing the, the picture ahead, the, the land ahead of actually moving and what do you think they think specifically or what are they saying about having to move? 
Mm. Well, people are saying and thinking a lot of different things. Uh, yeah, I think you're totally right to point to the state of the of, of public housing in Victoria, the conditions that people live in um, are one of the main reasons why potentially people could be sympathetic to the renewal program because it seems as if um, kind of knocking down the estates, rebuilding them, this is all... Um, this is all in the tenant's interest because something needs to be done really seriously about the estates. Like, um, we, we hear stories and we see instances of people's fences are falling down, there are holes in people's roofs, some people with families' ovens don't work, things like this that, are, that should be basic repairs that any, um, any private tenant would have done, people aren't getting. So people can be sympathetic to the idea that something needs to be done. Um, but in the end, uh, people... Uh, first, they've, uh, and I think the majority of people on the estates um, don't know what's going on. So the, they don't know that them moving is a part of the, the renewal program of the government. Um, they haven't been informed of the full extent. They um, are being promised that they're going to be able to just return to a renewed estate, uh, whereas the, one of the main issues that we have is not only is uh, most of the land on the nine estates is going to be privatised, but the conditions that people are going to be moving back to uh, are quite concerning. So it's not actually likely that most people are going to be able to con- to move back. But what do you mean um, by so concerning? Um... Well, it's concerning because um, first and foremost, the government is saying that they're uh, that they're going to be increasing social housing by ten percent, but we have a lot of evidence to say that that's uh, not exactly true, and that on a lot of the estates, by their own figures, there are going to be less people able to return because of the bedroom sizes. They're going to be building primarily one and two bedroom estates and not uh, one and two bedroom houses, um, uh, units, and not three bedroom ones. And so there will be an overall decrease in the number of people who uh, can come back. So particularly for families. Not only does that mean that there's not going to be a 10% increase, but a lot of families aren't going to be able to return. However, people are being promised that, that they will be able to return, so that's particularly concerning for us. Not only that, the conditions they're coming back to, they're going to be um, facing an estate that is half privatised, and so on the section where public tenants can return, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot less space. They're going to be a lot more refi- uh, confined. We actually know of stories such as in Carlton, where a similar thing has happened, that the tenants who have moved back have been, in a, I would call it, a segregated from uh, the private residents. For example, there are um, there are a whole playgrounds where a lot of the children from um, from the public um, from the, the children of the public tenants they can't get into the playgrounds because there are walls built up surrounding them. So this is all a bad precedent and this is the kind of situation people are going to be returning to. And on top of all of that, the fact that families most likely won't be able to return, that there won't be an increase, on top of all of this, the less space, uh, it's not guaranteed that it will be public housing at all. It's most likely going to be the community housing sector that's going to be managing the properties. Even if it's public land, it will be community organisations. A lot of these private private organisations that have come up to take uh, social housing but don't have the same long-term leases leases that people do in, in government housing, that they renew leases every 12 months in yeah, different conditions. Absolutely.
3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. 3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR and linked in with our last uh, segment there over the wall, which was talking about public housing. Um, we're now joined on the line by Kelly, who is a fellow 3CR broadcaster from the Ruminations show. Thanks a lot for um, coming on, Kelly. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, one thing, you know, we spoke a little bit about, I guess, in the lead up and then and now after the state election in particular around housing and, you know, it seemed to, as, um, you know, they, they just talked about in Over the Wall as well, that it was an issue that I think for m- most people, you know, it, it's a massive issue in Victoria, in Melbourne, you know, not just a thing that's blasted all over the papers about, you know, people being able to afford to buy houses and whatever. Um, you know, that's something that trickles down, I think, to the other experiences. But particularly, you know, I think for, you know, rental issues, um, public housing, and also, you know, the huge increase in people sleeping rough as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's why we wanted to, to chat about this um, today. So I guess, you know, maybe just to give people a little bit of an idea about, you know, what, the ruminations kind of show talks about as well and um, to just start from that kind of... What would you like me to talk on? Well, I guess, yeah, just some of the issues that are, you know, what what do you guys, you know, think are some of the issues that are really the things that are affecting people in Melbourne today? In homelessness? Yeah. Oh, gosh, uh, so many. Um uh, well, obviously, there's all different types of homelessness, from primary homelessness, that's rough sleeping, people in their cars, people on couches, people in rooming houses, emergency accommodation. Um, so all those different cohorts, um, you know, have different experiences and different challenges. But, um, like, it's the same old story. I feel like, you know, I'm repeating myself, you know, Five years later, there's just not enough affordable housing. Um, the Labor government has done some good things, I suppose. Um, well, not really. <laughs> it's really committed to social housing. Um, mm. And as we all know, that's, you know, community housing and affordable housing. It's not necessarily public housing. So mm. that's really disappointing. And, uh, we, you know, we know that they're demolishing, what is it, seven... Um, in a city mm. public housing estates and the contracts haven't even been signed 
for those, and yet the tenants have already been moved out to far-flung suburbs of Melbourne, we're told, where there's no public transport and things like that. Um, Kelly, can you tell us a bit about, from the perspective of people who are, you know, in, in housing um, insecurity or, you know, on the verge of homelessness or, you know, living rough, what is, what are the key differences between so-called social housing and then public housing? What, why the preference for public housing from your perspective? Uh, because you, you're better protected, you see, because it's government-owned, um, it's managed by government, you know, the public service, the Department of Health and Human Services, um, they can't just turf you out. Um, you'd have to have some really, um, you know, major problems for you to be turfed out on the street in public housing. Even if you're in a rent arrears, you can come to some kind of, you know, payment arrangement so you can maintain your tenancy. And in um, private um, housing and community housing, um, all the different models have all different um, policies that they implement. So it's not... Um, what do you call it? There's no overarching streamline kind of policies that affect all those different organisations and um, they often also cherry pick um, their tenants. Mm. So, you know, people believe in the Homeless Persons Union, which I'm also a part of, that people that are rough sleeping, for example, right now will never, will never get straight into um, a community housing property because... They may not have a good rental record. They may not earn uh, uh, the amount of money that the provider um, seeks. So public housing is, you know, a lifeline for people that are, you know, primary homeless right now. And that's just one of the reasons why it's so important and we need to keep it and build more of it. Mm. One of the things that we saw, um, you know, recently, I guess, was that, you know, I guess talking about the... Um, Rooming houses and I guess, you know, the kind of, there's been a lot of rooming houses closed over the last, um, you know, few years. And then the response from that, I guess, has been where these other types of rooming houses have opened up that perhaps even less kind of regulations and things as well. And this seems to be, you know, obviously one of the things is the Gatwick Hotel, um, in St Kilda, yeah. which closed down and, you know, become part of the TV show, The Block. Um, mm. And the kind of response from this, you know, I think it's sort of, on the one hand, uh, you know, it was a place that, um, you know, we've seen a kind of fallout of people, um, you know, women from there have, you know, had a... Um, you know, a rough time since that's closed down, and you know, but they're I guess, all in jail. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but on the other hand, you know, there was um, a lot of problems about um, that place itself as well. You know, that um, people had a lot of bad experiences there as well, and mm-hmm. you know, I guess it's kind of a sim- symptomatic of the kind of um, of housing itself that what is, you know, there's sort of a best of um, two bad situations in a way. Well, it's like, you know, where where else are people going to go? If there's not enough affordable housing, um, people are going to end up in places like the Gatwick because they're certainly not going to get into community housing, that's for sure. And I guess, you know, like I said, with that closing, that um, those women have all ended up in jail and that's kind of... Yeah. That's the secure housing that the state is providing is to actually just lock people up. And it's really, I guess, you know, criminalising the idea of not being able to afford a house. Yeah, I know a couple of people that um, have a lot more to do than myself with um, uh, the criminal justice system, and they say that the prisons are just overflowing. Mm. 
Well, it's, it's one thing, actually, um, we were talking earlier about the film Sorry to Bother You, and I guess it, it kind of looks at uh, one of the aspects in that film is that people voluntarily kind of go to prison because nobody can really afford housing anymore. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that, you know, being displayed in our kind of popular culture are not that um, too far to imagine, really. You know, I think that this is one of those things where the... Politicians, you know, the policies are not really offering an alternative to what's happening, um, yet we're kind of still stuck with this this situation. Do you want to hear a really crazy story that's come up from New South Wales? Yeah. Apparently, um, I've just uh, gotten wind of it, um, new public housing tenants in New South Wales will be put on six-month leases, and if they haven't found employment within this six that within that six months, their leases will be terminated. Mm, far out. What, what about if they're living with a, with a physical intellectual disability? Is there any uh, provisos for you know, people who may not be able to work for various reasons? It sounds like a beat-up, doesn't it? It's crazy. Mm. Yeah. Well, I so think that's pretty disturbing. Very disturbing. Yeah. Six months is not, is not a very long time just to unpack your things, let alone <laughs> get everything else in order. Yeah, public housing is supposed to be there for the long term, you yeah. know, it's just, mm. it's a safety net. And I guess, you know, like one of the things that the kind of models that, that has worked is to provide secure housing for people and, you know... Housing seems, first, mate. Housing first, exactly, yeah. yeah. And it seems that the government across, um, you know, state and federal... You know, they have an attitude that really people need to sort out all the things in their life, and and then you know they might may provide a house for you for you then. But yeah, you can't do that when you're in crisis. That's right. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that it's going to. I assume that you know, with this kind of thing in New South Wales, that it's going to pro- provide like further strain on those services as well as you know people that you know that kind of uncertainty plunges people further into crisis, really, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's just a mean, punitive dystopia that we're living here in here in um, Australia. Like, so many academic papers and research has been done that's just laying around on, um, uh, you know, what do they call it, research banks across this country that all show, you know, we all have the solutions to homelessness. We know that the Housing First model works. Finland has drastically reduced its homelessness by 80% or something like that. So at the end of the day, it simply comes down to political will Mm. and um, our governments and our political parties just don't want to do it. And that's the thing, isn't it? Like they've got the money to build new prisons, they've got the money to build 30-year rail projects, but when it comes to building... I mean, from your perspective, Kelly, would that be the best first outcome, to just build 100,000 new homes? Uh, yes, I mean it works. We know that housing first works. You can't um, you can't deal with your issues properly when you're in crisis, when you're living in your car, when you're living in a rooming house where there's violence and people just come out of jail and people are going through all kinds of crises. There, you, you can't <laughs> deal with those issues when you yourself are living in crisis. So that's why people need, you know, permanent, secure, affordable housing with wraparound services. Kelly, one of these, like you said, um, you know, about providing houses, one model that, you know, we have seen, you know, work is the common ground housing in Elizabeth Street mm-hmm. in which people are given housing and there are support services that are, 
you know, permanently part of the building there. You know, downstairs they have, um, you know, uh, workshops and things that people can attend. You know, there are services there and people are engaged and, and you know, and provided housing. Why isn't that something that is replicated? And, you know, we've got, an, we've got an example, like, you know, you said about overseas models. We have an example in Melbourne that's worked. Yeah, I don't know how that came about. I think one of the private developers like Grollo actually built that. But it's maintained for, by... For um, launch housing. Yeah, by, by launch housing. And, um, you know, I guess, yeah, I'm not sure about the, um, you know, how it was funded or whatever, but that seems, I think, you know, like you said, that the kind of studies show as well that, you know, overall in terms of using services and things like that, that from a financial perspective as well, that giving people housing and um, the security of that and building that housing and providing the services around that is also a, a more affordable thing for governments as well. Oh, yeah, like I was saying, there's so much research and, and data available that show that by housing people, we save tens of thousands of dollars a year on emergency services and all that kind of jazz. But so the, the evidence is staring right in the face of governments, but for whatever reason, they just don't have the political will to, to do what needs to be done. I don't know if it's, they think they're going to be rewarding the lazy people of the world by building by building housing or something. I don't know. Mm. Well, um, unfortunately, we have to um, wrap things up. We've got another um, interview starting in a moment. But um, if people want to hear more about um, the kind of issues that are facing um, or, you know, just more about homelessness issues or, um, you know, some of the things we talked about, about um, rooming houses and things like that, they should tune into Ruminations on Thursdays at 12 o'clock. Yeah, that'll be great. Thanks very much. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Kelly. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. See ya. Bye-bye. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and it is 8.15, and um, we're just going to have another quick announcement, and we'll be back um, with our final guest of our International Human Rights Day broadcast. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our lover. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. 
and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Now, over the past few years, we've heard a developing rhetoric in Australia and elsewhere about the growing influence of China, which is our largest trading partner and soon to be the world's most significant economy. Uh, Media outlets pump out story after story, uh, initially about uh, mainly China's economic development, Um, you know, the One Belt, One Road, uh, will mean more distribution of Chinese product in Europe. But, you know, about this time last year, news broke about uh, Labor Senator Sam Dastyari. Dastyari was accused of representing China's interests and the tone of the reportage started to shift um, and the actions in the Australian and the United States government shifted as a result as well. And just last week or in late November uh, during the G20 summit, reportage by Western media outlets appeared to lay blame at the feet of the Chinese Communist Party for the USA's ongoing and terrible opioid crisis. Uh, just on November 29th, the 192-page report by American think tank the Hoover Institute uh, was published and suggested a similar line of thinking developing in the U.S., the, this idea that Chinese forces are deliberately and systematically undermining our noble and unblemished democracies. And uh, I'm joined on the phone now by Sean Winscript, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne and a keen China watcher, to talk about the veracity of some of these claims. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, Sean, how far back can we kind of trace the history of this growing anti-China sentiment? Um, I think uh, official and popular um, anti-Chinese sentiment um, in both Australia and the United States um, has a deep historical has deep historical roots. Um, uh, in you know its modern origin. Um, can be traced back, of course, to the 19th century um, when the racist stereotype of um, uh, yellow peril prevailed and was also institutionalized. Um, of course, it hasn't always been the same throughout its history, and the um, Chinese are uh, uh, by no means the only target here. Um, for example, during the World War II, um, China was often portrayed as uh, powerless, um, mm. uh, uh, bullied um, ancient civilization, whereas the Japanese were depicted as the um, ugly evils. Um, during the Cold War, uh, racism, xenophobia um, were entangled with fear of ideological contamination by communism. Mm. So, but you know, I mean, the, the mainstream media and the government they they don't like to think that they're being anti-Chinese. Um, so Clive Hamilton, who published the notorious um, silent innovation, uh, he and his allies have been very vocal to, to defend themselves from any accusations of racism. Mm. Um, you know, they say, no, 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 this is all based on um, careful observation, legitimate concerns. We're not racist. We're just being vigilant. But uh, they don't seem to realize or want to admit that um, this can and has been played playing the role of um, uh, legitimising racism, um, especially in everyday life, um, especially at the peripheral of society. Um, so Aaron, Aaron Cho, I think, reported early, early this year that, that, that there's been a spike of anti-Mainland Chinese racism, especially in rural Australia. So mm. I think the government and, and the media has a lot to answer about perpetuating this you know, racism in a country that was founded and developed through uh, racial violence. I guess, you know, one of the things that, you know, we don't want to just see it as, 
you know, you can either support China or America or, you know, the way that's mm. kind of put as well. And I think that, you know, some aspects of the rise of any imperialist power, I think, are disturbing. And, you know, that what, what I think is most disturbing is the potential push for, you know, a global war between, um, you know, China and America, especially kind right. of pushing towards um, the brink of each other. And I guess, you know, from yeah. an Australian perspective, you know, we, I think we worry about... Um, you know, what is Australia's role going to be in that? And, you know, I think we can mm. say most likely supporting America. Um, you know, and at the moment, Australia is playing this kind of role of trying, of militarily kind of supporting America, but, you know, still wanting to protect, um, you know, investment interests in China. Um, mm. And I guess, you know, we should, it doesn't need to be this, you know, just fixed thing of support China or America. And I think that that's a bit lost in the conversation as well, is that, the rise mm. of any of these imperialist powers is most likely going to lead to conflict, which is going to be disastrous for citizens in all, all of those countries. Yeah. Sean, um, to talk about the parliamentary response to some of this media reportage, back in 2017, Clive Hamilton, who you mentioned, submitted a report to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. And he, he suggested that the, the new laws that they were beefing up at the time to uh, kind of combat foreign interference, the new laws would be best tested by their ability to control uh, Chinese influence through their United Front program. And I just wonder why the focus on this program, as opposed to other nations that have an influence in Australia, such as Indonesia, our closest neighbour, or the USA, who has uh, army bases and spy outposts, uh, you know, thousands of troops stationed in the north of Australia. You know, yep. why, this, why do you think there is this legislative focus on China? Mm. I, I think the reason, uh, there's a mix of reasons and it's um, uh, complicated than what it seems. So the, ob- ob- uh, the most obvious um, is, you know, China. I think I don't think China is an innocent country. Um, it's no longer an obedient, um, you know, game player on the um, glo- global stage. Um, but we all know that it's, you know, China's ruled by an authoritarian regime. There's limited political freedom. Uh, it's becoming more and more powerful, competing with the world and all that. And, and it's got a sad human rights record, right? Mm. So that's all very obvious. But, but I don't think it's that uh, simple because um, the idea of China has uh, uh, also been uh, manip- manipulated into the propagation of some sort of China threat theory, mm. uh, if not outright conspiracy. This has been uh, widely criticized by you know, a number of scholars and commentators throughout the year, uh, David Burphy, uh, Wenning Sun, Colin Robinson, Aaron Cho, um, they, they, they've all, uh, all been very vocal in um, criticizing this um, idea because what it calls to mind um, is not just historical racism, but also this Cold War era mm. McCarthyist anti-communist hate. Mm. Uh, despite the fact that China is neither communist or uh, totalitarian, mm. so I think the second reason why um, China's been sidelined here is due to this legacy of the Cold War. And, 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 and I, I just want to um, say something else, um, that I also think there's a deeply entrenched um, Orientalism and ethnic stereotype to it. Mm. It's the idea that Asian people, especially the Chinese, are susceptible to you know, top-down brainwashing, um, which is also a legacy of the Cold War. Uh, I mean, a big part of um, Clive, Clive Hamilton's book is about how uh, migrants 
and international uh, students from mainland China could easily be used mm. by Beijing to spy on Australia, right? So it's this idea that the Chinese are, I don't know, they are, you know, an unthinking mass, this stereotype. And, and, and finally, and very importantly, I think there's also that kind of, you know, sanctimonious self-delusion mm. that Australia and, and the United States they are, you know, they're the home of democracy, mm. home of uh, human rights, diversity, tolerance, mm. all that, regardless of the reality, right? So, um, no matter how vice reason, uh, Australia is pre- preconceived here as the, the, the guardian of civilization, the vulnerable democracies whose, you know, values and institutions are um, under attack from the from the contaminated other, that is China. Yeah, and this is, you know, one of the ironies of this recent reportage accusing China of flooding the US with uh, illicit opioids. You know, the US is the largest Mm. consumer of illicit drugs in the world because of its own economic and social problems is one of the key drivers of this, you know, terrible problem that's mainly affecting the working poor. Um, You know, it is a strange aspect of the rhetoric that there is this assumption that what is being protected are these noble democracies, these perfect democracies. But how healthy is Australian democracy? You know, we've got people locked up offshore. We've got complete inaction on a public issue like climate change. You know, how realistic is this this prescription? (laughs) Well, one thing that Australia, I think that Australia and the um, United States have in common um, is how they've been... Uh, uh, justifying their concerns over China by, by claiming that they are defending their values and national interests. So this abstract idea, ideas of, you know, our values are national interests. But I think if we look around, um, and look into the past, uh, it won't take us long to see that the West has no ground to, uh, to congratulate themselves as noble democracy. I mean, there are plenty of human rights abuse as you said, have been committed, they still are, uh, under the name of pr- protecting Australian um, national interest, uh, by which they mean the interest of the um, the elite who are predominantly white and male. And um, I think history shows us that white nationalist interest has always been protected at the expense of minorities' rights and civil liberties in these two countries. Um, I mean, the re- recent passing of the... Um, uh, in the encryption um, legislation in Australia is one of the many instances um, mm. to, to point to this, you know, hypocritical, baseless claim that Australia is a healthy and innocent democracy. I think, I think the real threat to democracy and human rights is in Canberra. And one of the things, you know, it reported in the media a lot is the kind of crackdown on you know, that kind of thing in China and, and highlighting how the Chinese government looks at its citizens. Mm. Yet, you know, as you said, that encryption um, bill that was passed received very minimal um, attention from the Australian media. The encryption legislation? Mm. Yeah. I think we received a lot. Well, in comparison um, to the way that it's, it's portrayed as to, like, what happens in China, I think that, you know, it's kind of swept under the rug a little bit. Yeah, China's China's mm, spying yeah, yeah. or on its own citizens, yeah. you know, and monitoring of its own oh, yeah, citizens is presented in a dystopian way. Meanwhile, ours is presented to us as increasing our security and yeah. freedom. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So this is um, a classic, you know, scapegoating mm. um, the other for our own problems. 
So I just wanted to ask you quickly, because we're almost out of time, but a lot has been made in Hamilton's report and this report from the Hoover Institute about pressure being put on uh, academics and business people and students working in the China space. Now, you do that. You, you write Chinese history. You're a Chinese national mm-hmm. yourself, I believe. And uh, I wonder, as someone working in that space, have, have you found the scrutiny of your work has increased in the current climate? No, absolutely not. Um, may, I don't know, maybe they, they're watching, uh, but, but I'm not aware of any scrutiny <laughs> from the Chinese side. I, 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 you know, I travel a lot to China for research, for teaching. Um, I, I do, a, um, you know, my research topic is very sensitive. It's, it's on, you know, Mao, it's, uh, mm. Mao era dialogue lightning. So I look at people, you know, people's private scripts. Um, so I haven't really, um, I, I haven't received anything from China, but I think so far, suspicion of my work has all come from audience in the West. I, I have been on several occasions, um, you know, accused of being a, a Chinese nationalist or an, or an uh, apologist for the Mao's totalitarian regime. So, I don't know, I'm not concerned. Mm. Well, it's a very interesting topic. I'd be keen to talk to you again because I don't think it's going to be going anywhere in the near future. And thank you very much for your time this morning. We are out of time, but thanks for joining us on Monday Breakfast. No, thank you for having me on. That was Sean Winscript from the University of Melbourne. You've been listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And up next, as it is every week, is Women on the Line. So stay tuned.